Hello there, it's Scott, back with a bonus episode. You are about to hear a preview version of a premium episode that I did of an interview with John McKenzie of TIFO IRL. This was, in my opinion, a very fun episode, talking about how John sees the game, and he was very kind to answer a number of questions that you all sent in. Um, and it is just a really, really good um, episode to kind of talk through the philosophical and tactical side of the game, something that I always need more of in my life as I get sometimes a little bit too bogged down into the numbers. So I think this is something that is really, really interesting. Um, if you want to be able to hear the full episode, you can go to canonstats.com and subscribe as a premium member where you'll get access to a special link in your podcast player in addition to all of the special uh, premium content that me and Adam do. This episode will also be available for subscribers of the Arsenal Vision Patreon and should be published sometime this weekend. Thank you and please enjoy the preview. Yeehaw, hello, and howdy. I hope wherever you are listening from, you are doing great. I am excited because today I have a very special guest, a very, very special guest. That's my Pep Guardiola impression, and it's not very good. Probably shouldn't do it again. Um, I have the pleasure of talking um, with John McKenzie from TIFO Football. John, welcome. I am really looking forward to this. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm looking forward to having a chat with you. Yeah, I don't normally do impressions, so maybe I should really just stick <laughs> with that. Um, yeah, so I am so happy, <laughs> so happy. Yeah, I, just like I don't, I don't do accents. Um, I can barely do my American accent, um, and I think that's about as good as I get. Um, when I was in I'll London be... with my wife, she started picking that up and wanted to like be English, <laughs> and like I kept trying to have to push her and say, "No, stop doing that. People are going to look at you weird." Yeah. I've uh, I've been working on my Ange Postacoglu, which is I've worked out Ange Postacoglu is just Australian Sean Dyche, so okay, I've been having yeah. a lot of fun with that. I, I do like the Australian accent too. Um, I worked with uh, quite a few people um, in in Sydney area, and it's just a, a wonderful uh, dialect and uh, just vocabulary that mm. the Australians mm. have. Um, I absolutely love it. So so good. Yeah. All right. I think that's a, enough preamble. Um, we got a lot of questions. Um, I, I reached out to people and they gave us more than what we'll probably have time for. So um, I'm going to have some of my own that, that I kind of got John prepared for. Um, so I just wanted to you know, kind of get a little bit of background. So how did you get into more of the, the tactical side of the game? Um, you know, the, the stuff that you do for TIFO is awesome. And that is a lot of the, the big focus, um, I would say. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one because I think a lot of people would expect someone who goes into the, I suppose, high theory <laughs> tactic side of things to to not really come into it from the football side of things, uh, especially I probably do have a focus uh, towards the, the theoretical over mm -hmm. the, the practical. Um, but I actually got into tactics because of the practical side of things. So I went to university and played for the first team of my university uh, for four years. I was involved. I went through the coaching process there and um, helped out coaching the women's team there the final year that I was there. So I, I sort of got the the bug for for actually doing on pitch coaching stuff. Mm -hmm. Went somewhere else to do my my grad work and ended up coaching the women's team there for five seasons. Um, and again, just really enjoyed it. And I think the 
the, the the tactical side of things came for me through that because I I, I guess my my experience of having um, coached was was very much this is how it was done for me uh, and therefore this is how I will do it for other people um, but when I was um, when I was coaching a women's team for for five years you you get you know you get the space to sit down and think well you know I need to know what I'm doing here a little bit more so that was when I really started getting interested in the tactical side of things but I guess in, in terms of the, the 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 more theoretical aspects that came uh, probably probably later on um and I was just, so I was probably a little bit more of a proper football man b- before okay. then but um I was lucky enough to join a, a a group chat on Twitter with some some guys who are now variously employed across the the football industry or the football media um and they dragged me kicking and screaming <laughs> actually understanding really the you know the theoretical aspects of the game as well so yeah kind of a weird uh, sideways maneuver for me from from the the practical side of things um and you know being a relatively successful coach but to not really um understanding the theory just having a, an ability to to get teams playing in a certain way um but now yeah having moved into that more tactical uh, more theoretical side of things in recent years which i think a lot of people are, are very interested in now because that's the way the game's gone and i think there's it's clear to to sort of point um those sort of theories and ideas towards uh, what's happening on the pitch now and people want that to be explained to them because it's not always immediately apparent what's what's going on yeah and i think that is a, an interesting shift that you've seen in the media being more interested in doing that i think you know you kind of think about like some of the stuff that happens on monday night football um you know those like really kind of like interesting things and it's like people maybe thought at one point oh this is a too niche of a type of content but i, I think that it's really clear that this is something that there's a lot of people that are interested in. Um, I, I know I am always kind of drawn to it. I don't always um, have that same full understanding. Um, I think from that, you know, same level as you guys do, but I always really, really enjoy being able to see these kinds of things. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one because um, I've already sort of distinguished there between the, the theoretical and the practical. And there's an argument that is made that the the theoretical is you know needless and pointless um the most important thing is the practical because at the end of the day why would you need anything other than um the the ability to make these ideas you know unfold on the on the field um but i do think that there's a you know the theoretical aspect is interesting there's a lot of people who watch football rather than play it and yeah there's a lot more people who watch it rather than play it and um i think that the ability to be able to explain what is going on and what it is that coaches are trying to to do in terms of the um in terms of the enactment of these ideas on the field uh, is is still in- incredibly useful so i very much enjoy my job because it gives me the opportunity to to educate people um and yeah i think that's it's great that the media has now come to actually encompass people who want to approach the understanding of the game in that way. Yeah, absolutely. Have you noticed that it changes the way that you watch the game? Um, like, do you watch it as like a, a fan or do you watch it more as a, an analyst? Yeah. I mean, it's, I, I get that question quite similarly. Um, I'm just always curious how other people view the game. I think that watching the game as, as a fan is still something that I do. Um, a lot of the time when I'm watching, you know, live football with friends or even, even if I'm not really in the mood to analyze, I'm watching yeah. the game as, 
as a, you know, just the game is just the prima facie thing in front of me, the TV screen, and I'm usually rooting for one team or the other, usually not based on a huge amount of, uh, <laughs> of, of reasons. But um, I, I, in that in that respect, I can still enjoy a game. Um, I, I think what the the experience of being an analyst has changed for me is that it changes your relationship with your own club. Um, so I spent the last five years or so prior to last year covering Leeds under under Bielsa and mm-hmm. on the one hand that was a an incredibly um uh, rewarding experience and it, it, in many respects it was that period where I learned the basics of, of of tactical understandings but I think when you spend that amount of time and, and you you guys will be able to attest to this as well when you spend that amount of time following one club it it changes. I think it changes your relationship to that club a little bit because, for me, and maybe this is just because Leeds have, you know, for the last two two seasons have have basically made the worst decisions they could make in almost every situation. Um, it, it, it's meant that you you know the, the club's is in so much depth. You know the the owners. You know the the coaches. You know the the players. You know the youth team. You know everything to do with the club. And, um, I think you just, you, you almost get to a point where you know too much and, and it, and it sort of becomes too familiar. So I've definitely experienced a, a, a slightly weird drop off with Leeds over the last few seasons when things have got really bad, because it's kind of frustrating to be someone who thinks a lot about the situation that, that your, your team are in. And when they're making those, those poor decisions, and it seems as though the decision makers at the club have, uh, have not a. A, a great grasp of, of how of they should around around from exactly. decision like that's that's yeah. really what it felt like with leads too it's like we we know something's wrong but we don't really know how we're going to go about fixing it let's try this and like there doesn't sure. really seem to be a process yeah and i think that that has changed my my experience of, of supporting leads but I, I mean i think i am sort of healing from that now but there's still you know, even even in this transfer window there's still a huge amount of mess to be sorted out at leads but uh, yeah it, so, so to answer your question, I think that you know I I can watch some games with, with mm-hmm. an analytic hat on, um, but I have to force myself to do that. I, my my natural in, uh, my natural inclination is always to just you know sit in front of a game and, and sort of enjoy it for what it is. Um, but I think that the yeah the, the the weirdest downside has been you know the the frustration that you you have from covering one club in in minute details and and sort of getting frustrated by by how badly it's gone. So. Yeah, it's it's definitely a weird um, situation that has I think affects everyone who works in the game uh, to a certain degree. Mm, yeah, I think that yeah, there is quite a bit of truth to that. Where like it's almost like then you have a kind of some of the things that you see in the media where you could tell sometimes where things are only at the the surface level because you just have a little bit maybe even too much perspective like onto to what's going on and it's yeah. yeah it's sometimes a little bit interesting to see those kinds of things. Mm. yeah and and i think that it, it, there's there's a sense in which that's a sad thing you know it's i miss having that that innocent relationship i had with football in in the past um it's it's hugely rewarding to be able to sit down and, and have a go at trying to understand what's happening on a football field but um that loss of innocence um is is definitely there for i think a lot of people who work in the game mm. Yeah. So this one's a little bit more on, I think, the the meta level of, you know, the the TIFO stuff that you guys do. Mm-hmm. So how in particular do you decide what sort of videos or what kind of things you're going to cover uh, week in, week out? Is it, you know, something that's just in the news? Is there certain narratives that you 
um, you see and you want to, you know, so like, I know that's something that I often will get drawn to. Like I hear something on a podcast or I read something um, that somebody's written um, and I'm just drawn to, huh, is that true? Uh, and that that is something that drives a lot of the things that I end up doing. Um, so I'm just curious yeah, how you guys go about picking what you're going to cover. Yeah. I have a huge amount of flexibility in terms of the things that I can, you know, plan to to make as videos. Um, I'm involved fully in the commissioning process. Essentially, mm-hmm. that that's how it works for me. I'm I'm employed as talent, and and therefore um, I'm sort of given leeway to make the decisions about the things that we should be doing. Obviously, it goes backwards and forwards, and there'll be some situations where I, I don't feel like I have anything immediately obvious that I want to work on, in which case I will have a chat with um, usually Joe uh, about what we think's interesting that's going on. I think that the big challenge for, for us on the IRL channel is to, because we're so much of what we're doing is um, linked to what's happening in the, in the, in the leagues, in the season, yeah. um, that you can, you can sort of get, um, you can get too focused on the, the short term. And, and one of the tricks I think we need to, to crack, I think we do a good job of it more recently, but one of the things we do need to crack is having these more evergreen content. So being able to cover topics that, you know, people will click on um, in a few months time as much as they will on the day that it, it comes out. Yeah. Um, whereas, you know, the, the temptation is always to just follow the big stories of, of what's happening in the, in the season. So, um, yeah, in many respects for me, a big part of my job then is to remain interesting. And the way that I try and do that is just by simply watching a lot of football, uh, listening to a lot, a lot of content, mainly podcasts, to hear what fan bases are saying about their team, uh, to see if there's anything that I think is interesting there as well. Um, and yeah, I, I, again, it, you know, in some, in many respects, it can be quite scary because you you kind of think, well, what if I don't have anything to say? But I think my experience of of covering football has always been that if you put the time and effort in to actually sit down and analyze games um, and, you know, we, we cover the big teams in, in, well, you cover the Premier League and then the big teams around Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, there's always something, there's always something there that is, is interesting or something that shows up. The Premier League has never been deeper in terms of the talent levels of the, of the players, but also the coaching staff and the managers. Uh, and so there's definitely a lot happening at every level of the, uh, of the league in in a in a te- technical and tactical sense, so um, I've I've really not felt as though we've had to struggle to find things. You get to the end of the season, and it's you know it can become a bit like trying to squeeze water out of a stone, but that's largely because you know the, the audience stories is, are already kind of done. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. The audience is the audience is is fatigued. Everyone knows, you know, that I think last season we saw a little bit of a drop off after the point at which it became clear that you know Manchester City were coming back. Sorry yeah. to sorry to remind your listeners of that fact, but um, it definitely had an impact on I think people's interest in what was going on because it was then just like, well, Manchester City have won the league. We've got nothing now to look forward to until yeah, it's too next early season. to start. You know, talking about uh, sure. transfers and yeah, those yeah, kinds of yeah. things. And it's like, right, like I guess the the relegation battle was still kind of there, but yeah, the the end of the year was kind of a a little bit of a, a letdown. Yeah, and I think even with the relegation battle, I don't think people are that interested in the tactics of the relegation <laughs> no. battle. It's just very much a free for all, right? Where it's like the last man standing wins, and and uh, yeah, uh, as a result of that, you know, you have a natural depression in terms of the views. But again, that brings me back to what I was saying before: is in those moments you have to have these longer term videos where where they are a little bit more um, focused on things that are are interesting, regardless of what's happening in the season as well. 
Mm. Um, so this one kind of goes uh, dovetails nicely with a question that we got from Ann Buckley. Um, she says, I'd love to know if John ever hears from teams, either positively or negatively, after a story or video. And if so, how does he keep any interaction from influences analysis? Yeah, I'd, I'd say that most teams are very good at like not respond. I know that, you know, obviously teams, people at teams experience our videos and and Mm -hmm. you know largely if you say something good they'll probably like it if you say something bad they probably won't i think they're very good at being uh, careful to to make sure that they're not not influencing things but there's i get contacted by a lot of coaches who um are almost always very very positive about Mm, the content and um i find that really i find that really um comforting in 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 a sense because you know you can feel a lot of the time as though when you're doing what we're doing and we're doing it from very much uh, a sort of media um, background rather than, you know, coaching staff background. There's always the worry that you think, you know, am I just making things up here? Is any of this like meaningful to in any way to people who work in in working clubs? Um, and right, it's- yeah, because it's like you're you're almost taking like a, an educated guess on the intentions of what they're trying to set out to do, right? It's like you mm. feel most of the time you've you're in the right direction, but it's nice to get that validation. Yeah, and and again, like what I was saying before about the the theoretical versus the practical, you know, obviously there's a lot of overlap, and you can there's plenty of ways of finding out what is is going on. And so, for example, a good example of this is we we talked a bit recently on TIFO about the role of Trent Alexander Arnold and the training ground guru who's just put out a podcast, which is an interview with Pep Landers, who's the assistant coach at Liverpool, and he talks about that, and you know the the, the conclusions that I've reached about about Trent Alexander-Arnold, the reason why they moved him inside, were being clarified by by the assistant manager of Liverpool, whose idea it was. So mm-hmm. there's a sense in which um, y- it's, you, you can find that stuff out. But for me, like, the, the real the real test of the tactical world, as I said before, is the, is the practical. It's the ability to get those those ideas, which I think are largely quite simple, right? It's not, it's not rocket science um, to, to, to talk about why you might move a fullback inside, some of the advantages, some of the downsides that you might get from that. What is tricky is to, to be able to develop um, the, the, the innate capacity for those players to play in that way, to develop drills to help them understand that, to, to almost trick the players into knowing what to do without having to necessarily sit them down and teach them the theory. Um mm-hmm. So I have a huge amount of respect for these coaches because so much of what they're doing is, you know, that's the hard yard stuff. Uh, but it is nice to hear from coaches who say, I really enjoyed what you did here. And it's it's not there's a, there's a few coaches who get in touch with me uh, to talk particularly about out of possession stuff because I've sort of forged a, a little bit of a niche there in many respects. And so I'll get coaches sending me clips of their team saying, what did you think of this situation? Do you think there's a, a solution to this problem, uh, et cetera? And I find that really, really uh, encouraging as well. So um, in that respect, I don't feel as though a, a lot of these coaches are, are not operating at the at the highest level. Um, I am good friends with with a, a Premier League a coach at one of the Premier League sides. And again, he's very, very um, complimentary of what we do, uh, particularly the, the the fact, the way that we do communication. And I think this is something that is really interesting in terms of crossovers, actually. Sorry, this may be a bit of a tangent, but it's okay. a, a lot of the coaches who get in touch with me are really interested in the way that we are able to communicate. Um, and this coach at the Premier League side is always saying, you guys do a really good job of communicating ideas because you aren't able to use live footage, which obviously every club is using. So it's a lot easier to communicate your ideas. But this coach is um, a set piece, set piece coach. Um, and he gets, f- I think, five minutes 
uh, a week to talk to the players That's before crazy. a game about how about what the set piece like plans are for that week. And he says he spends four hours planning this five minutes. So he came to to talk to us at Tifo about the concept of communication. And there's a lot of coaches who get in touch with me and say really like the way that you do communication. And I think that's a an aspect of uh, of coaching that I think a lot of people um, don't realize is, is is super important. So I think there's definitely the the overlap there as well. And um, yeah, it's it's always great to hear from these people because, you know, the one of the main criticisms that we'll always get is, you know, if you say something negative about a club, it'll be a fan coming along being like, well, if you're so good at this, why are you not working in club football? <laughs> um, so it's it's quite nice to hear from people in clubs who think that we're doing a good job and, and, and tell us to keep up the good work. You know, I think that that is interesting too, right? Because you, you think about what's kind of like the ideal time frame for a YouTube video, right? I think you're you're probably shooting for that what ten to fifteen minute range for the types of videos that you're doing there, right? So it's it's not that dissimilar to that guy that you know has to distill something into five minutes, which is also just an absolute crazy amount of time to try to distill, right? Like this is where we're going to attack this week. This is what, you know, the, the other teams have done, you know, over time and like how we're going to think about defending it. Uh, it, it, it seems like such a, a minimal amount of time. Do they, do you think they're doing that because that's the, the attention span that they've kind of figured is best for, uh, the players to be able to absorb the information and getting, you know, like this is the bullet points, I think that one of the most important jobs that a coaching staff can have is to protect their players from information. Mm, and what yeah. I mean by that is that they they should obviously be working their way through all of the information that they need to work their way through as a coaching staff, as a, as a group of analysts on top of that, um, et cetera, as a, as a front office staff as well. But when it comes to the players, you have to be super careful to make sure that you're only telling the players as much as you need to tell them i think it, 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 that's a, true as a general rule there'll be some players who want to know more and will have the capacity to to do that will be and, and, and you know those are the players who are going to end up coaching in the future but i think when it comes to those sorts of things the important thing is to make sure that your players know what they're doing um and you you give them that information in such a way that they're able to you know take on board all of that wealth of information that we talked about before but in such a way that they don't get I don't want to say overwhelmed because I don't think overwhelmed it's it, it, that's a bit patronizing to the players because a lot of these players are very smart when it comes to football uh, tactics but I, I think it, it is a, you know it's about making sure that you convey the things that they need to know in order to win that or to perform as well as possible in that game uh, and I think that's an incredibly tricky um, situation to be in and I think that's why it takes four hours to to do a five minute talk because you have mm-hmm. to decide do they need to know this? Um, am I explaining this as simply as possible? Am I getting my ideas across as well? So yeah, I think that the, the, there's an element to which the, the most important aspect of, of coaching is being able to, you know, protect the players from the information to a, to a degree so that you can allow them to do their job without uh, ne- negatively impacting them in terms of, you know, overloading. Yeah, and I think that there's almost a, an interesting thought of like the on the training field versus preparing to go into a match, right? Like I think on the training field, that's where you can probably do maybe a little bit more of the information. You have the coach there kind of explaining this is what we're looking for here. Um, you can have even almost like a, a player be able to have the the freedom there to take a second to think about things that aren't necessarily where you want it to be drilled into a match where it's automatic there. Mm-hmm. You don't want somebody to necessarily have to think 
back um, to like, oh, what did the coach tell me? Oh, now the, that's not there anymore mm -hmm. in the game. But on the training field, it's yeah, you can get probably a little bit more into depth on, you know, these are the different things we've seen or, you know, this is why we're doing it. But going into a match, it's more like this is the, you know, just the things to remember that you've already kind of drilled in. I don't know. Does that make sense or am I, you know, off base? No, I think so. I think the football coaching is simultaneously top down and bottom up. I think the top down stuff is the tactics and, and the idea with the tactics should be to present frameworks for the players together as a collective or in small groups on in certain parts of the field to be able to make the correct decisions uh, and to give themselves affordances, uh, which I think is a very trendy kind of tactics word at the moment but I like the word affordances because what what affordances essentially means is you know creating the conditions in which things become easier to do um so that's the top down element of it but you know the big argument is always can I mean this you, everyone talks about positionalism versus re relationism at the moment but the big yeah. that big argument is about is football top down or is it bottom up and I think in, in my experience it's both um yeah. and, and like so you want, yes yeah, exactly. There can be certain situations where the top down can can start having a negative impact on on the individual players, uh, and in which case you need to you need to reassess the, the 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 way that you're using the tactics. But yeah, when I say bottom up, I mean you know a lot of these players, particularly at the highest level, and uh, you know that's where the, that's where you know it can be interesting to think about the levels at which the tactical the tactical aspects can become less important but when you have super elite players which is which is what we're seeing at the at the highest level there's a sense in which those players are going to be able to solve problems themselves through individual talent as well so in the ideal world what you want is to have a system which brings the best out of those players in such a way that they can um, simultaneously make the most of their talent but also have the system solving problems for them as well so I think that's that's sort of the way that I would look at it, and and I think the the real challenge for coaches is to be able to get that balance right between you know overloading tactical ideas on them, but also allowing them the freedom to to be able to um, use the the talents that many of them have that no one else uh, in in their team may have. So I, I think that's that's the real the real challenge of coaching. Mm -hmm. That's that is really interesting. So I'm going to switch gears a little bit here. Um, how do you feel or how do you deal with like kind of the the need, especially like early in the season here where it's it's really hard to pick up trends because we have a sample mm -hmm. of one? Um, how do you like deal with like those the pressures where it kind of feels like there's the you need to make big statements about mm -hmm. matches or teams um, or even like when it's later in the season, it's like a new coach coming in. Um, like, is that something that you ever worry about? You have a, a big opinion that it's going to come back to bite you or do you <laughs> just try to you know deal with the, the different things there? Yeah, there's a few different levels here. So a few things to tease out in terms of in terms of the sample size uh, issues on the one hand. Yes, I agree with you. Like early in the season, you don't have a huge amount of sample size to work with. But I'd say two things to that. One is that I think when you when you're focusing on the tactical, you have the opportunity to maybe be uh, to, to to maybe have instinctive opinions on mm. the basis of small sample sizes. That's not to say that they are going to turn out to be true necessarily. But I think the the job of coaches a lot of the time is to deal in small sample sizes. Right? If Absolutely. a coach loses five games in a row, that's an issue. And if there's uh, there's an underlying issue that is evident in all of those five games, then then you sure as hell want your coach to be able to try and pick up on those. So I do think that I, I'm also a guy who believes in in 
in using the data as well. And you know, the the beauty of data is that you can you can use it to simplify large sample sizes down. Uh, and I think you can get a parallel benefit from from coaching staff a lot of the time where they actually you know they they speculate on small sample sizes and can give you an indication of where things may be going. Now that, again, you take it with that pinch of salt because it is a small sample size and it can be the case that you that you miss it. So um, I think that what good teams should be doing is they should be having that realization that we have, again, it's like top down, bottom up stuff that we we're talking about before. You want to have conversations where you're talking to your big data guys because they are able to see the big picture in terms of, of what, what's going on with the data. But it's also useful to have those conversations with the coaching staff as well, because they may pick up on things that, um, that, that, that come through. A good example of this is uh, when the season when Newcastle were um, in danger of relegation, they've just hired Eddie Howe and mm-hmm. my good friend, uh, ben Torvani, who who was working as a as a data analyst in Serie A, um, isn't anymore. But he wrote a piece at that time talking about how difficult it was going to be for Newcastle to avoid relegation. Because actually, if you look at the numbers, they it's not just that they had to perform well enough to avoid being a relegation side. They had to perform well enough to you know actually perform as a mid table side to get them out of the rot that they were in. Um, yeah, to and overcome the the you know the hole that they had already dug themselves. Exactly, right? exactly. It's a rate of change issue, right? Rather than just if you perform as a non-relegation team for half a season, you'll be fine because that's not always the case if you're starting off the race at the back. Um, and it's a good piece, and it's true, and it's completely like it's completely logically sound. But I watched a few games in Newcastle, and I just had a gut feeling that the things that Eddie Howe were doing were good enough for them to actually escape. Um, relegation so ben and i have had some interesting conversations about this and he talks to me a lot about how he actually thinks that that tactics guys can 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 pick up on trends earlier than 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 others but obviously at the same time there's the possibility that you pick up on things that are just noise um and so that's why you want to make sure that you're always having that conversation with the data guys as well and balancing it off um that's that's the holistic approach that you should you should have so that's that's sort of how i come down in, in terms of like at the moment making dis- making um assessments of teams on small sample sizes is is worth doing but you should always be <laughs> aware of the fact that that is what you're doing the other thing i would say is that you know the sample size um may be small at the beginning of seasons but i still think that a lot of the time when i'm judging a team even this early in the season i'm judging them against the context of the end of their season as well or the last season as mm, as well yeah, right because it's, it's all like a continuum sure now obviously yeah, we, have, we, have, we players... have these break points obviously but yeah, yeah it's yeah. still like yeah but we have these new players. We have we may have like new tactics, etc. But I think it's and, and now another example of this could be like Manchester United playing against Wolves. Are there problems with Manchester United's uh, pressing system? I think that there's the potential that could be the case because I think last season Manchester United had one of the most predictable pressing um, structures in the Premier League. And the problem with having predictable anything is that teams can analyze that over the summer and come back to it and have solutions to to some of those problems. And so there's a sense in which early on in seasons, you can actually do small sample size analysis with the basis of, of those of that contextual information and have these ideas in your head. So that's not again, that's not to say that I think Manchester United's um, out of possession system is 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 a frailty that is just waiting to collapse but it's to say that when i'm going into watching their games i have this at the back of my mind are we going to see teams causing the problems and i thought there was evidence in the wolves game particularly in the second half that 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 there were ideas that were being employed by wolves 
in order to in, in order to cause structural problems, which would make Manchester United's out of possession approach a, a little bit harder. So that's by way that's by way of the context. In terms of the, you, you had another aspect there, I think about you know making big statements yeah. early on. Um, as a rule, I tr- I try to avoid making big statements, um, and I, I, it's funny because I think that the tendency is for everyone in the football media space or in the football Twitter space at least to to make hot take statements, right? Because yes. you want to make you want to make yourself stand out. You want to be you want to be ahead of the curve on things. You want to um, uh, stand out from the crowd, and, and obviously, like for example, for a team like Arsenal, there's loads of people wanting to, you know, have the best ideas about Arsenal. So you've got to go big, and you've got to go early, and that's how you and that's how you make a name for yourself. But I'm lucky enough now to to have a platform where actually I can be very careful with the the takes that I make, and I'm I, I think that I relative I, I am relatively, you know. Uh, uh, boring in terms of some of the takes that I make. Uh, I make sure I caveat them a lot. Uh, it doesn't always work. So, for example, I made a video on Bruno Fernandes at Manchester United and, and suggested that if Eric Ten Hag wants to build a modern elite press uh, uh, possession side, then Bruno Fernandes might not be the best player to to build around. And I thought, you know, I caveated it quite clearly and, and, and was very fair in some of the things I was saying. Uh, but obviously, fans come out and say, "Yeah, you think that Bruno Fernandes isn't good enough for Man United?" You know, the people will take the the simplest explanation of your of your take. So I think there's the situations like that that do come along. Um, the other thing I would add on this is that um, what I found working for Tifo is that tone is super important, mm-hmm. and I definitely I definitely get tone wrong all the time. Um, so a, a good example of that would be a video that I made on Aston Villa. Basically asking if Aston Villa are as good as people think they are when they were having that really good run under Unai Emery last season. And again, there's nothing in that video where I think that I've said anything that is factually um, controversial. Uh, My point was simply, you know, Unai Emery's come in and Villa are second in the points table from that point. (laughs) Yeah. But they're probably not the second best team in in the league. Therefore, there's a sense in which you know Villa have been lucky. They have they variance in all the right places, so that the best outcomes pretty much have happened. Uh, Villa fans got really annoyed because I used the word lucky because the way that yeah. they were interpreting that was they don't deserve to be playing well, which was not not my intention. So, but again, that's a tone thing that I, I could have I could have qualified what I said. I could have been less. Uh, I could have been less um, raw in the way that I said it. So that's something I'm definitely working on is, you know, and again, this comes down to what we were talking about before, which is communication. The the importance of communication is as much about not just getting ideas across, but making sure the ideas are presented to the audience in the way that the audience is ready to hear them as well. Yeah, that I mean, I think I've written something similar um, about Aston Villa as well. Um, And again, yeah, I know like, people don't like to hear the word lucky or anything like that. Cause I know I used that um, in regards to, to Arsenal at the, the hot start of the season last year. Um, it was absolutely lucky, right? This is a, you know, you think about like the, the distribution of results that you would expect and um, Arsenal were on a hundred point pace. And mm. I don't think that any reasonable person, even though they were maybe right up there with city, like as like the best team, like, that was absolutely in the right tail of the good distribution. Uh, the team was at that point incredibly healthy. They had a bunch of, they had like one bad performance, but they got all three points in it. Um, other than that, that's the like least game. 
that's what you're talking about there i know scott i know exactly um and then you kind of think about like the sequencing of when they were getting goals and those things like everything was going arsenal's way that doesn't mean that they're just because they're lucky doesn't mean that you're not also good yeah it just means that things are maybe this is a a, a incredibly random sport yeah um and like you just you have to account or and be willing to accept that sometimes Mm -hmm. luck goes for you sometimes luck goes against you um that doesn't necessarily mean you're good or bad um it's just a that's a a very interesting thing but it's a very emotive word Mm. i think for people yeah well i think you've articulated the villa situation much more tone friendly than i did so <laughs> so there you go um, um I, no i mean I, i've, I've certainly put my my foot in my mouth with uh describing things especially on twitter because you have the, mm-hmm. the really stupid uh limits on the number of things you can do right like i can i'll write you know something several thousand words um but tweet something and people mm-hmm. like latch on to something where i wasn't super careful clear with my yeah, tweets yeah. which because i mean it's twitter i'm not going to be super clear compared to like what i'm doing if i was writing or podcasting or you know making a video um mm-hmm. and like that can you know get you into all sorts of fun when you're doing that because yeah i think in general i have generally lukewarm takes that i I think i can defend and you know that i don't think are really controversial but um not always come across that way yeah and i guess i guess i would i would add to that that um my natural way of processing things is to sort of circle around things until i reach a point at which I decide this is what I think. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a very unforgiving way of approaching Twitter. So I think I've, I've definitely got to a point now where I try and tweet less. And um, I definitely fall foul of that, that personal rule quite a lot. But um, yeah, on, on Twitter, I think people give it as taken that if you've written something down, then you're standing behind that statement 100% where actually I can I often say things that I change my mind about within 10 minutes so it feels like almost like a rough draft of my thoughts yeah exactly but that's not how Twitter is perceived and so as a result I think I've changed my Twitter habits a little bit but there we are it's a it's a good goal that I think we could all probably strive <laughs> tweet to, to do. <laughs> tweet the less. First rule of Twitter: tweet less. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think there was a a, a, a baseball writer uh, who used to write about the, the the New York Mets and the rule number one of Twitter: never tweet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and I think Definitely. that's a, a good one that we could all um, probably live behind. <laughs> um, so I got a, a few more questions that I wrote down before we get into some of the the really good ones um, that we'll we'll get to. <laughs> um, so, which team do you think, in your view, has had the most complete transfer window to kind of address their needs? Because it's it's been a very very busy and interesting transfer window. It's a funny one because I don't know. They, it probably changes you know day to day, right? I mean, we still yeah. have two weeks left in the window. Well, the word "complete" is very loaded. I think. That's true. Very emotive. I'm, and I'm I guess setting I would, you up. <laughs> yeah, I'd like to know what you meant by complete. Because, for example, a team like Manchester United is interesting because it feels as though Manchester United have a play style and they recognise that there's weak spots in their squad to play that play style. And it feels as though they've brought in players to um, to fill those spaces. Give or take, we can have arguments about Mason Mount. But I think Mason Mount fits the profile of what they were looking for anyway. Mm-hmm. Obviously, they've come out and had a fairly torrid <laughs> first first game, so that would suggest that that my reasoning here isn't isn't great. All right, that's it. Hope you enjoyed this free preview. the The conversation goes for about another hour. Uh, lots of great stuff to to come here. So if you're interested, if this uh, got you interested in doing able to to see what we got here, um, you can subscribe at canonstats.com or um, to the Arsenal Vision Patreon. Uh, thank you guys again. Goodbye. <laughs>